0: This morning, we're going to start in 1 Chronicles chapter 19. Uh, eventually, we'll make our way to, uh, to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in 1 Chronicles 19. You can turn there with me now. Uh, this morning, we enter into a, a new phase in our study in the book of Samuel. We have seen David... It um, first made king over uh, the tribe of Judah, then uh, made king over all of Israel. Um, he's united the people. He's went out, he's conquered Jerusalem, made it his capital city. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant into it. Uh, David has, has a palace, he has a throne, he is at the top, uh, the pinnacle of his career, and now comes the downward spiral. We're going to be uh, looking at uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12 over the next few weeks. And this section of, uh, of Samuel, it forms a, a unit. Um, and it's, it's organized, it's, it's constructed in such a way as to, to form, uh, the, this unit. And it, and, and it's, it's a chiasm. If you've ever heard that word before, um, a chiasm is, is literary structure, uh, where, um, uh, elements within the story are repeated, but re- they're repeated in reverse order so that they mirror back on one another. And so, um, a chiasm, it comes from the Greek letter um, uh, chi which is uh, it looks like an x to us and so when you, you when you take uh, the the literary structure and put it down on pieces of paper you you see like that it forms an x so like the first point and the last point uh mirror each other the second point and the second to last point mirror each other and so on and so forth. so you get to the center you get to the middle of the x and, and the structure there is to, to point to what is the most important thing, what is the crucial thing. Oftentimes uh, all the time in, in our thinking, we, we have point, 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 point that builds up to our main point, which is the last point. But in a chiasm, the main point is actually the, the center thing that's the middle of what, what is said. And so, um, Uh, It looks like this, if you want to put that up on the screen. This is the the chiastic structure of 2 Samuel 10, 11, and 12. And what you see there at the beginning, there's uh, David. He's going to defeat a group of people called the Ammonites. And then uh, that's an initial uh, victory. Uh, Then there's a final victory at the very end, first and last points. Second point, uh, we'll see David's sin. And then the second to last point, we'll see that despite the sin, there's a blessing. Uh, The third point, we'll see uh, David's sin brought to light. Uh, And the third to last point, we'll see the consequences. But in the middle there is repentance. That's the center of the structure. That's the thing that the author of Samuel is pointing to. It's this thing called repentance. Now, um, next week, David Dittenberg is going to preach. Walk us through chapter 11, David's sin the following week that's the away game we won't be here just a reminder then august 6th david's going to be back and he's going to walk us through chapter 12 the the re- the revelation of the sin uh the the repentance of it and all that follows there in other words david's going to be dealing with the center of the x the center of the chiasm the next 2 weeks that we got it together okay my job this morning is to deal with the 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 outer part of the bio, the, the, the chiasm. Okay? Uh, there's another term for a chiasm. It's called um a, a ring structure. Imagine a bucket, right? And uh, and looking at a bucket from the top down you see inside the bucket there's the contents of the bucket. That's what David's gonna be dealing with. I'm dealing with the bucket. Doesn't that sound exciting? Are you talking about a bucket? Alright. Uh, so I'm I'm dealing with uh the the bucket and the bucket is David's what's going on in David's public life. There's this war that he's gonna fight with the, the group of people called the Ammonites. That's the public life. What's in the bucket, that's what's David, going on in David's heart, sort of his private life. Um, but, but the author of Samuel, he, he structures this in this particular way in order to show two things right? Sometimes we learn from the details of what God says in his word. Sometimes we actually learn just from the structure of it. And and this structure, uh, the author of of Samuel is is teaching us two things. The first thing is this, that he is reminding us of, of the truth that God has blessed his people in order for them to be a blessing, Right? To remind us of this biblical truth that God's people are blessed to be a blessing. And we see this throughout scripture, like uh, in in, in the the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises Abraham, I'm going to make your name great, right? But the reason he's going to make his name great and, and bless him is so that he will be a blessing. He'll be a blessing. Um, we see this in the, in the Davidic covenant, where God promises David in, in 2 Samuel seven that He's going to um, uh, he, He's going to bless him, He's going to establish him, but somebody's going to come from him. Uh, there's this dynasty that will come from him, and and there will be a, a final king who comes, an eternal king who comes, and He's the King of Kings, and this king will bless the whole world. We understand as, as Christians that Christ is, is that King, and we have been blessed because of Christ. We've been blessed because of Christ, but it is, it is not uh, our, our job to just hold on to that blessing and do nothing with it, that the blessing of Christ in us is supposed to be expressed, that what God has done for us, He wants to do through us, that, that, that we have been blessed in order to bless, and that's why before Jesus ascended into heaven, He sent us. right. We're, we're blessed in order to bless others, and so uh, the author of Samuel is is pointing to that this morning. We'll we'll, we'll look at that in, in depth here in a second. The second thing that this this bucket does, or that Sa- the author of Samuel is doing through through the structuring things this way, is is to remind us of the truth that um, we are not meant to live divided lives that we are not meant to live the lives where there's an inward life and then there's an outward life and there's a public life and there's a a, a private life that that that, that we're to, we're to to hide uh who we are on the inside and we're to wear masks and that we're 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 to pretend like things are okay when they're not or we're we're to live to just lives that are that are compartmentalized we're not to live divided lives and and what we see here is there's there's David what's going on in David's heart which we've seen Glimpses of as we walk through this. And then there's what's going on in the kingdom. And the reality is, is as the heart of the king goes, so the nation goes. That God is going to put pressure on, on, on him, and what's on the inside is going to come out, and there is no hiding it. So we'll see that this morning. Um, I asked you to turn to 1 Chronicles 19. And the reason why we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 19 is because um, this gives us almost word for word exactly what we find in 2 Samuel 10 and the end of chapter 12. Almost word for word, but one glaring difference. And the difference is, is that the author of Chronicles doesn't insert David's downward spiral. Right? So that's going to enable us just to focus on, on this, this war with the Ammonites and see the details there. But uh, we're need, we need to be people that read our whole Bibles, and, and, and so when we, when we read our whole Bibles and we, when we count on parallel stories, we see a story written over here, but it's repeated over here to, to compare and contrast the two, even in, in the contrasting we see uh, what, what's important. And, and one of the things we see here is that, that the author of Chronicles does not talk about David's downward spiral, but the author of Samuel does and he inserts it in a specific place within this war of the Amorites. So we'll look at that. But let's dive in. 1 Chronicles 19, Now after this, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal kindly with Hanun, the son of Nahash, for his father dealt kindly with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, to Hanun, to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father?" Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And they departed. When David was told concerning the men, he sent messengers to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So if you remember uh, where we've been so far, 2 Samuel 7, the beginning of that chapter, David is sitting in his his palace and he's thinking about what he's going to go and do for God. By the end of that chapter, God has said, no, I'm going to do something for you. And David's sitting and dwelling on what God is going to do for him. And then in chapter 8, there's this compilation of victories, military victories David secures. Um, it, it seems, the way that it's written, that it all happens at once, but it doesn't. This actually the, happens over the course of, all of his, uh, his, his whole life, all right? These are all military victories of David um, compiled into one spot there in chapter 8. And, and the purpose of that is to, to show, here. here's David. He's He's dwelling on the promise of God, and from that position, he launches out in the power of God and the giftedness that God has given him, and he secures things for his people. He blesses his people. And he provides peace for for, for them from from war. He provides um, a a workforce that will enable the the construction of the temple. But he provides uh, material wealth to pay for the construction of the temple. He's blessed by God. He blesses his people. Then last week, we saw him bless one individual, Mephibosheth, the grandson of his enemy. Mephibosheth. We saw this word over and over again, last word, hesed. It's this Hebrew word It means the loving kindness of God. And over and over, uh, David is expressing the loving kindness of God towards Mephibosheth. Well, this week, that expands. Uh, David is seeking to express the loving kindness, the chesed the kindness of God, outside of his nation's borders to another territory. He's, he's going to seek to demonstrate loving kindness towards another nation this this group of people called the Ammonites, right? So you notice there, it says, I will deal kindly with them. That word kindly, that's has said, I will show them the loving kindness of the Lord. That's what he intends to do. Um, now, uh, it says in here that uh, uh, Nahash was, uh, was somebody who had blessed him. We don't really know uh, the details of that. We know that Saul fought against uh, Nahash. Uh, Saul was David's predecessor, um, and, and maybe when David went on the run from Saul, Nahash saw David as like the enemy of his enemy, and so uh, some sort of kinship was made there. We don't know, um, but some way he blessed David, so David desires to bless him, show him the loving kindness of God, and so he sends this delegation to Hanun, his son, and uh, Hanun gets some bad advice. Uh, his advisors tell him, he's not here to console you. He's here to overthrow you, and so instead of, of taking this delegation and saying, thanks, but no thanks, go back to your king, we're fine, don't need you, um, there's the door. Um, they go a step farther and they shame them. They cut off half their beards, and then they cut off half their robes. Now, uh, the, you need to understand, what. The, here's a picture of a group of men who have half a beard, and they're naked from the waist down, forced to walk out of the Ammonite kingdom into their own territory. This is deplorably shameful, such a shameful thing that happens to them. But David recognizes that it's not just them who are shamed, it's him. He's shamed. He's the one that sent them. He's the king. He's the one who's shamed by Hanun. And so in order to cover that shame, he tells the men to stay in Jericho till their beards grow back. Don't come back to Jerusalem. He hides these men and essentially hides his own shame by having them stay in Jericho. Um, then in verses uh, six through ten, Hanun realizes his mistake. It says this: When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, they become deplorable. They become very, very offensive to David. So offensive that David is going to respond. They'd become a stench to David. Now, when they realize they become a stench to David, they don't send a delegation to David and say, "We're sorry. We made a mistake. We misinterpreted your your, your actions towards us." Uh, really, really, so how do we make up for this? Uh, they don't attempt to reconcile. Instead, what he does in order to cover up his stench is he goes and he hires the Syrian army to come and help defend against him when he knows David is going to respond to the stench, this deplorable act. Instead of reconciling, instead of making up, he goes and he hires an army for more bloodshed, right? Um, In verses uh, 10 through 15, David sends out Joab, the commander of his army, to to the Ammonites. Uh, Joab discovers that now there's, there's a battle on two fronts. There's the Ammonite front, but there's also the Syrian front. And uh, and so he divides his, his his troops, he orders some of them under Abishai, his brother, he sends them against the Ammonites, he attacks the Syrians, and on both fronts, they're successful. But we read this in verse 13, this is Joab saying, be strong, and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And if you've been following along in the story of Second of, of Samuel, we've seen Joab, and he's not always been a great guy, here he's acting, he's saying something faithful. He's, he's demonstrating trust in God, and yet we've seen him act pretty faithlessly. And that, it's just one more reminder that as we go through this, this study, it's hard to tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It's hard to say who's, who's wearing the white hats and who's wearing the black hats. Sometimes the good people act bad, and sometimes the bad people act good, but, but really what we see in Samuel is, is it's a leadership manual. There's a lot of things about this. It's like the lessons. It's like an encyclopedia of lessons for leaders. But, But oftentimes, good leaders point us to how great God is. Bad leaders point out how badly we need God. So there's this victory um, and it's secured, and then in 16 through 19, the Syrians regroup. They call for reinforcements, and so David goes out to meet them. He defeats them. And we we'll read this in verse 19. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. So the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites anymore, right? So this is the details of what we saw summarized and compiled in Second Samuel 8. But the Syrians are now taken care of. Right? They're no longer a threat, but they're still the Ammonites. Look at chapter 20, beginning of verse 1, 1 Chronicles. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So Chronicles, this is the account of how the Ammonite war ends. It ends with uh, Joab. He's getting ready to, to... deal the final blow against Rabbi. He calls for David, come out. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to claim victory for this. So David comes out. He deals the final blow, captures the city, takes the crown from Hanun's head, and he puts it on himself. Okay? This is the story, according to Chronicles, of the war with the Ammonites. But this is different than what we see in Samuel. Um, look again um, in, in, in First Chronicles 20, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, Joab led the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. We're going to see the exact same thing. Second Samuel 11, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And it's at this moment where the author of Samuel says, time to put David's downward spiral into the story. And we read this in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. I'll stop right there. David will take it from there next week. But you see, the author Samuel, in the middle of this war, is interjecting what's going on in David's personal life. Here we see the downward spiral begin to happen. Now, why is the author of Samuel putting it this way? Why is he structuring it this way? As I said, there's two reasons. The first one is is this, to remind us of the biblical truth that God's people are blessed to be a blessing to the nations around them. That requires us to take a step back and ask questions like, who are the Ammonites? Like whenever you read a a story in the Bible and you see like, we should take time to ask, well, the Ammonites are mentioned by name. They were a specific group of people. They had a role to play. Who are the Ammonites? And, and so, if we're going to be people who read our whole Bible, we go back to the stories that we, we've seen before this, and in case you don't know, we'll, we'll do a quick history lesson. The Ammonites were descendants of a guy named Lot. Um, if you've uh, read the book of Genesis, or, or maybe you know the stories, if you don't, don't worry about it. There's a guy named Abraham. He has a nephew named Lot. Uh, they both are growing in wealth, and wealth in that day and age was herds, flocks. And uh, the, the number of animals, livestock they have is so big that they can't occupy the same ground. They need to separate from one another. So Abraham says to Lot, hey, you go your way. Whatever land you pick, I'll go the opposite way. And, and that's how we'll solve the problem. So Lot says, hey, I'll go that way. Abraham says, fine, I'll, I'll go this way. And, and, and God, just as God gave Abraham a territory for his descendants, so God gives territory to Lot to his descendants. And that's why we read this in Deuteronomy 2 when God is, is leading the people of Israel uh, out of slavery, bringing them into the promised land. He says this, this to them, When you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, but because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. The Israelites were not supposed to conquer or destroy the Ammonites. They were supposed to live alongside them as neighbors because they were related to each other. They were distant cousins. They were kin. Right? The The reality is that the people of Israel were meant to put on display what God is like. God had given them all of these details of what it means to live live holy lives in front of the world to live a holy life that pointed the world around them to God. In other words, they were supposed to influence their neighbors, their kin, that the people around them were supposed to point through the way they live their lives to what God is like. The problem was that instead of pointing the Ammonites to God, the Ammonites pointed them to their gods. And you read in the book of Judges how the Israelites adopted these false gods, these idols that the Ammonites worshipped. One was named Molech. People sacrificed their children to this God, Israelites began to adopt those practices and they put high places around their kingdom and and they would ascend these places and they would worship these gods. And yes, they sacrificed their children. Instead of influencing the Ammonites and pointing them to God, the Ammonites influenced them and led them astray. And here is is, is the warning for us. As Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. That we we are called to live alongside of people. And we are called to, to show the world what God is like. We are called to express who He is to them, but we're not called to be colonized by the world, to be influenced by the world. We do well when we could point the world to God. We do bad when, when the world changes us, and we reflect something back that is not of God. The second thing we, you know that we see in all of this is that uh, David. He, he extended this steadfast loving kindness to, to, the, to the Ammonite people. We talked about this last week. Who are we called to, to extend that steadfast love to? Right? But we need to remember that as we do that, we open ourselves up to threat. That in, in loving people, we find that we become vulnerable and are able to be hurt. And, and ridiculed and shamed and attacked as Christians. We, we need to understand that the culture thinks what we believe is stupid. The, the world around us thinks that what we believe is, is ignorant. And, and, and it seeks to shame us as, as such. But that should not prevent us from extending the loving kindness of God. Now, here's what I want to point to in all of this. David's predecessor, Saul, fought the, the Ammonites. Won, but then Saul did something that disobeyed God. Uh, He rejected God. He rebelled against God, and he did not repent. So God took the kingdom from his hands, gave it to David. David, we're going to see, is about to sin, but David will repent, and he'll get to keep the kingdom, right? But years later, David is on the run from one of his sons who is trying to steal the throne, trying to, to take the throne. So he's on the run, and he's out in the wilderness, and who comes to him when he's at, his, at the end, when, when he, he needs help the most? Who comes to him? Look, at, look with me at this. 2 Samuel 17. We're still months away from this. I won't go into detail here, but I want you to see a glimpse of this. When David came to Mahanaim, because he's on the run, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, along with two others, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd. For David and the people with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Did you notice that? Beginning of, uh, of chapter 10, David wants to extend the, has said, the loving kindness of God towards the Ammonites. Uh, Hanun shames him, rejects him. However, after David uh, re, you know, conquers the Ammonites, he puts Hanun's brother, Shobi, into power. And years later, when David needs it, it's Shobi who shows up. An Ammonite king, a neighbor but a, an enemy, shows up and he shows him the loving kindness of God. Right? Now, now, follow me here. This only happens because David repents. The, the byproduct of his repentance will lead to a moment when this neighbor is able to show him the steadfast love and kindness of God. And here's the point, right? The, the author of, of Samuel is, is saying, we, we are blessed to be a blessing, but how do we bless? And, and, and here's the point that I want to make. It, it's simply this, that not only will our righteousness point the world to God, but our repentance after our unrighteousness will point the world to God. That, that it's not just our morality as Christians, that reflect what God is like, but it is our willingness to be humble, to confess, and to accept the grace extended to us that will point the world around us to God. Second thing to take away from this uh, is is to remember that, that we're not meant to live divided lives. To, to remember that we cannot compartmentalize ourselves between what is personal and what is private, or private and public. We're not, we're not meant to live compartmental lives. We're, we're meant to live authentic, holistic lives of, of integrity, right? And, and David failed in this. But the way that the author of Samuel uh, structures this in the center of the bucket is David's personal life. But the, the war with the Ammonites, that's the public life. But the public life is actually reflecting what's going on in David's heart. Three ways that you see this. First is shame. Shame. David sends his delegation to Hanun. Hanun cuts off half their beards, uh, half, of, half of their clothes, makes them walk uh, naked away from his kingdom. Uh, shame. And David's response to that is to cover it, hide it. Stay in Jericho until, until your shame is gone, until you can come back. Shame. The second thing, stench. There's this, this deplorable stench. The Ammonites said, we've become a stench to David. Stench. In a lot of ways, David is going to act like Hanun. He has been blessed with the loving kindness of God, and his sin is such a stench in response to what God has done for him. He's going to act like Hanun, and, and has, as Hanun reached out to Syria to, to hire somebody to come and, and defend him and, and, and to lead to more bloodshed, so David's going to ask Joab to step in and cover his stench for him, as we'll see. The third thing is this unbearable crown. Look at chapter 12, Second Samuel chapter 12 verse 30 with me. Now, again. Samuel doesn't put this in chronological order. He's not concerned with chronology. He's using this chiastic structure that that points towards repentance. He's not as concerned with chronology. So how all of these events happened and in what order is a little bit tricky to figure out, and we can't know for sure. So I'm going to tell you what I think. Whenever I say I think something, take that with a grain of salt. Here's what I think. I think that when Joab was about to conquer Rabbah, and he calls David and he says, Hey, if you don't come, I'm gonna deal the final blow to the city, and it's gonna be called by my name. In other words, I'm gonna get the credit for this victory. You need to come and finish the city off. And David does, and he deals the final blow, and he conquers Rabbah and he takes this crown. I think that God gives him that victory before he repents. I think David went to the city of Rabbah in the midst of his sin. covered in his sin and shame and stench, and yet God gives him a victory anyway. I don't say that because I can tell you that for sure from the text. I say that for one reason. It's what God did for me. That while I was dead in my sin, that while I was an enemy of God, he sent Christ to go to the cross for me and secure a victory for me. That's what he did for me. Regardless, there's the grace of God there put on display. The throne of David is not taken away from him. He'll get to remain king, but there's going to be an unbearable crown. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 30. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. Because of David's sin, he's he's allowed to remain king, but he's going to have this horrendous burden now. We'll see the details of that in, in coming weeks, but one of the things that comes out of this, a relationship that he never should have had will produce a son, Solomon, who will be like a jewel in David's crown. He will be the heir to the throne. He will be the one that builds the temple. However, in this household, there's a whole lot of other stuff, David will experience as his father watching his son commit sexual assault, murder, insurrection, and he will spend the rest of his life with the weight of this upon his shoulders. An unbearable crown. Notice the crown here, the physical crown that he takes off of, of the king. It weighs a talent. You know how much a talent weighs? 60 pounds. 60 pounds. How many of you would like to have 60 pounds of gold hidden in a drawer somewhere? How about 60 pounds of gold in a safe deposit box somewhere? How many of you want 60 pounds of gold on your head? Imagine going to the gym and and picking up a 45-pound plate and putting it on your head. Or grabbing a a 60-pound dumbbell. Right? This is the crown that was placed on David's head. And I imagine after a few moments of wearing it, you'd get a headache. I imagine after a few hours of wearing it, it would go down your neck. I imagine if you wore this continually, it would cause you to be hunched over. You would have severe spine and back problems. You might end up a cripple if you wore this thing. Is this a blessing? This is a picture of this unbearable crown. David is is allowed to remain king. See the picture of the unbearable crown here. What do we take from all this? Again... We've been blessed to be a blessing. And one of the best ways that we could bless the world around us is by demonstrating repentance after our unrighteousness. Second thing to take away is is to to seek to live lives where God doesn't have to squeeze out what's on the inside for the public to see. To live lives of of, of integrity, that that we live lives of, of openness and honesty that we don't segregate, that we don't do what David did. And, and hold on tightly to unsubmitted portions of, of our heart. That we're willing to submit it all to Him. Now, what should our response be? And this morning, our response, it begins, I don't think it ends with our time together. I think it continues after we leave, but I think it begins with communion. So I'll ask you to pass the elements right now. In a moment, you're going to hold these elements in your hand. These are symbols of the body. Christ that was given for us, that he goes and he pays the penalty with his body that we could not pay and suffers a death that we deserve and that atones for our failures and sins. And because of that, we get to go free. But the blood, the cup, it also says that, that we have a new covenant, a new relationship with God now because his blood was poured out. See, not only are sins forgiven, but now we've been adopted. We're sons and we're daughters of the Most High God. We get to be members of the family. But see, all of that was the work of Christ for us. All of that was the work of Christ for us. And and here's this, the the, the beautiful thing to think about is this. Jesus took the unbearable crown for us. He took the unbearable crown for us. Now, I'm going to give you a moment to work through two questions, to meditate on these to prepare your heart before you partake of communion. And here's the, the two questions to think of. One, am I reflecting the heart of God toward the world around me? Or am I reflecting the world around me back to God? Like, am I putting God on display with my life? Am I living a life that looks different from the world around me? Am I any different? Am I, am I showing the world a different picture? Am I, am I showing what God is like secondly am I living a divided life or an undivided one are there inner recesses of my heart that I don't allow anybody access to not even God things that I don't deal with I don't talk about I don't discuss am I living a divided compartmentalized life in a moment uh, I'll pray there'll be some awkward silence as we deal with these questions but before that, I, 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 I'll, I'll confess this. Early on this week, I was in a group uh, with, with four other individuals. It's a group of people that um, I, I believe I've been sent to, that I, I've been, that I have this role in communicating the loving kindness of God towards these individuals. But I'm in this, this room with them, and there's this conversation happening, and, um, and, and one of the individuals begins to tell a series of jokes. Uh, and they're racist jokes. And, uh, and I, I know that he says that he's a, he's a Christian. It bothered me in the moment, but sometimes it takes a while for things to sit with me. Uh, it was actually 24 hours later, I'm trying to go to sleep, and uh, I keep reliving the conversation in my mind. Do you ever, you ever relive a conversation, but you change it to go down in your mind the way it should have gone down? Right? And if somehow I think that the more I do that, like, it'll actually change the situation, right? Uh, and it doesn't. And so I'm, I'm laying in bed, I'm just getting uh, more angry, more frustrated, and, uh, and so I, I get out of bed, I, and I go downstairs, and, um, and I... And I, I, I feel God impressing something on me. I don't hear the audible voice of God. If you do, that's really cool. I've never heard the the, the audible voice of God. It's usually deep down in my spirit where he impresses upon something and and I check it with scripture. But in that moment, um, I believe the Holy Spirit was telling me, uh, you're not mad at at that Christian who who told that racist joke. You're mad at yourself because you laughed at it. I did. I laughed at it. I laughed at it." I tell you this for two reasons. One, uh, you should recognize that I am a fallen person. Uh, You should should see me in that light. Uh, You should know that there are times when I don't reflect what God is like. When I do become influence rather than influence. You should know that there are divided parts of my heart you should know that although I have been declared righteous by Jesus, I've been justified by him, I have not conformed to his image, and I am a long way away from that. And I want you to know that I'm not here to point you to me, I'm here to point you to Jesus, and you need him. And you need him like I need him, and I need him badly. The second reason I tell you this is that through confession, we take what's in the darkness and we bring it to light. The reality is, I laughed at that joke because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be included, and I I wanted to to have that acceptance. And in doing that, I acted out of character. I acted out out of who God has made me to be. I did not think that it was funny at all, but I laughed in order to gain acceptance. And the next time that I see those individuals, which won't be too long from now, I will confess. See, I don't think that my job here is to point the finger at them and shame them. I think my job here is to to, to show them, hey, I screwed up. I lied to you. When I laughed at that joke, I wasn't living out of who God has made me to be. I wasn't living out of my true identity. I was was telling a lie. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Christians, if we we'll stop hiding in the dark and bring what's inside out. I think that testimony alone will point others to Jesus in powerful ways. We live in a world where everybody's trying to cover up and hide. Let's be different. So I'm going to pray. Deal with those questions on your own, and then when you're ready, partake. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your work of love demonstrated through Christ Jesus, his body and his blood. Thank you for redeeming us while we were still yet sinners. While we were still enemies, you saw us, you loved us, you fought for us, and you sacrificed your son for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to do that. To come and be what we needed you to be. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to live because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to be humble. Help us to be repentant. Help us to seek to live authentic, holistic lives lived before you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.